All right, everyone. I'm going to read our scripture for today. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3 and will be in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're continuing our series, 10 verses every Christian should know. Last week we did uh, Romans 12, um, this week First Peter. Uh, there is a, a mantra in our society uh, that is often said, that is, follow your heart. Follow your heart. And uh, our verse starts out this morning talking about, I think, really kind of the foundation of what it means, what it looks like to follow our hearts. But you have to know where your heart is leading you before you follow it. The Bible tells us that the heart is exceedingly wicked above all things. Who can know it? Who can trust it? And so when there's a sense in which we don't want to follow our hearts, but what we're going to see is that it really depends on what's in our hearts. The verse starts out this morning. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I think it is easy to take this word heart here in a very modern, western, individual context, rather than the Middle Eastern context in which it was written. You see, when we talk about the heart, we talk about the, the inner life, right? The, the personal, secret, private place uh, of, of our lives. Or we talk about the heart as like the, the center of our emotions or our feelings. But that is not what... The, the ancients taught, that is not what uh, the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans or the ancient Jews or the ancient peoples thought about when they talked about the heart. You see, for the, the heart, for them, wasn't the center of the emotions, it was the center of a person from which everything else flowed out of. The heart wasn't the center of the emotions, the heart was rather the throne of one's life. So whatever sat upon the throne would be expressed through our minds or our thinking, our emotions or our affections and our will or our actions. So whatever is in the center of a person, on the throne of that heart, would be lived out through how we think, how we feel, and what we do. And so Jesus affirms this right, uh, for us when he talked about the heart, the way Jesus talked about the heart. He says... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so whatever you find to be the most precious, the most valuable, the most fulfilling thing in your life, the treasure of your life, that is where your heart will be. That is what your heart will go after. Your thoughts, your daydreams, whatever that is, is where your heart is. So what is that for you? Where is your heart? What is for you the most valuable, precious thing? What does your heart treasure? Is it family? Is it wealth? Is it fun? Is it being in a relationship? Is it beauty? But then Jesus also said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever is in your heart is going to come out in words and thoughts and actions. So then, 
whatever you think is the most valuable, most fulfilling thing, comes out of you. You see, the heart isn't the center of the emotions. The heart is the center of your being. The heart is the throne of your life, and whatever sits upon the throne comes out. So, for example, if money is what is on the throne of your heart, you will think about, how do I get more money? You will feel good or bad depending on the status of how much money you have or don't have. And you will will, you will act and work toward getting or preserving your money. If relationship, having and being in a relationship is on the throne of your heart, your thinking will be dominated by how do I find a relationship? What do I need to change about myself to get into a relationship? What's the kind of person I want to be in a relationship with? Your daydreams and your thoughts will be dominated by that. And then your feelings will rise and fall based on the status of your relationship. And your actions will be dominated by trying to find one. You'll go to the places and, and be online where you can find a date and so on. So the question is, what is on the throne of your heart? Now, reread the beginning of our verse in that context. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Is Jesus on the throne of your heart, at the center of your being, is Jesus, therefore, the most precious, most valuable, most beautiful, most wondrous thing that you treasure? Is he the most holy thing in your heart? That is, the word holy means set apart. Is Jesus set apart from everything else and set above, apart from, in your heart as the most important thing on the throne. You might also obviously value and cherish other things. You value and cherish family and, and, and what your kids and, and your job, whatever else. But is Jesus holy? As, in, as he's set apart and distinct and the most important reality on the throne in the center of your heart and your life. That is what Peter, at the beginning of this verse, is commanding us to do. To make Jesus the centerpiece of our lives. Honoring him in your heart is not a private thing. Honoring, putting Jesus in the center of your heart is not a private, individual, uh, inner thing. Like we think of when we think of heart. It is making him the centerpiece, the Lord of your life. Not making him the mayor of your life, but the Lord and the king and the sovereign over your whole life. You see, Jesus is not to be one of many competitors for your attention, for your heart. He is not to be one of many things on many thrones. He is to be set apart. He is to be holy. He is to be different. If family is on the throne of your heart, you will ruin your family. You will smother them. You will try to find more fulfillment in them than they can give you. You will push them away. You will overanalyze every fight, every tiff, every comment, everything that happens. And you will be an emotional mess and it will destroy your family if family is on the throne of your heart. But if Jesus alone is at the center of your life, on the throne of your heart, then your family can be a source of great joy and happiness and flourishing as a gift from God. And you will finally be able to see clearly your family, your family dynamics, and you will accurately be able to handle situations and you won't smother or obsess about them and destroy your family in the process. If Jesus alone is the center of your life, on the throne of your heart, your family can be this great joy. So we want Jesus 
to be set apart in our hearts, to be the center, the throne, Lord alone of our heart. And that will affect everything downstream. When Jesus is the centerpiece of our life and our heart, when Jesus is on the throne of our heart, it's not just a personal, private thing, oh, me and Jesus, you know, we got this thing going on. But rather, when he's on the throne of your heart, your thinking will be about him and, and his way of thinking. Your feelings will be dominated by, uh, they won't be on a roller coaster, they'll be steadied. And your actions will follow the things that God wants you to do. Everything downstream will change when Jesus is at the core and the center of your identity and who you are and on the throne of your heart. See, the inner and outer life are inseparable. The inner and outer life are inseparable. What happens within will inevitably be displayed outwardly. Whatever you've got going on in here, whatever's on the throne of our hearts is going to get lived out. It's going to seep out. This outward display will present itself in every area, every corner of your life. When we see Christ, when Christ is on the throne of our hearts, it's expressed in a particular way that we're going to see in this verse. The particular way in this verse is that when Christ is on the throne of our hearts, it is displayed through evangelism. That we are going to talk about him. That we're going to share him. See, when Jesus is the most treasured thing in your heart, you won't be able to not talk about him. When Jesus is the most treasured thing in your heart, you will not be able to not talk about him. You know, we talk about what is important to us. We talk about what has value to us. We talk about what we enjoy, what makes us smile, what gives us happiness. And that's why we talk about football and family things going on. And we talk about our relationships and we talk about our careers and we talk about our vacations and we talk about all these things that we do because those things have value to us and they bring joy to us. But why is it that we are not people chomping at the bit to talk about Jesus just as naturally as we do talk about these other things? You can talk to a stranger in a barber shop about why the Bengals are, are so good and why you can't wait for football to start and this and that and the other about the Bengals or about the Reds who are all of a sudden good all of a sudden, right, or, or whatever. But you can't talk to that same stranger about Jesus. Why? It is because Jesus might not be the most central thing in your heart after all. That doesn't mean you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you're not uh, forgiven of your sins, but it means that there is a war happening in your heart. There is a war being waged over the throne in your heart, and Jesus isn't all, you're not always letting Jesus win that battle. You're letting other things win that battle. You see, we cannot just sit back and hope in the end that Jesus is going to become the central reality in our life, or that as we say around here, that Jesus is going to become essential in everything in our life. You can't just sit back and go, all right, Jesus, figure it out. All right, he's screaming at you. I need to take control of this over here. Give me the reins. And we're like, and Peter is commanding us here that we have to work to make Jesus a central thing in our hearts. Honor Christ in your hearts as holy. Set him apart in your heart. Nothing that you treasure, 
nothing that you value, nothing that you love just happens. You work for it. It doesn't feel like work all the time, but you do work for it. The problem is, when it, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like work for us when we go and read and know every stat about the Bengals for the last 10 years. It doesn't feel like work. You just go read all the articles. You read all the things. It doesn't feel like work when you go and, 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 and read your, uh, whatever novels you're into or when you go and do whatever hobby you're into. It doesn't feel like work to go do those things because you love them. But it is our lack of love and joy and happiness and liking Jesus. And we're not spending time with him. And it causes us to devalue him in our hearts and, and, and have more value for other things. And so if we're going to fix that, if we're going to fix that unequilibrium, that means we've got to actually spend time with Jesus and enjoy him and do the work to study and treasure and focus on him. We're running, the, you know, the Bible talks about this race, and we're, we're running this race, and we're supposed to have our eyes on Jesus. And when we have our eyes on Jesus, I'll stay on the track, and I'll keep running the race. The problem is we're like squirrels, and we're going to go shiny. Right? We're like, we're running the race, and we're like, but hey. Right? And Jesus is saying, get back on track, get back on track. And we're like, okay, hang on. Oh, but over here, what's this? All right, we're distracted. We've got to keep our eyes and fixed on Jesus. And then we'll treasure him. And, we'll, and, and, and our hearts will be connected to him. And he'll be the center thing of our hearts. And everything else will flow out of that. Making Jesus central in our lives takes discipline. Because everything else is also fighting for the right to be the center of your life. And if you don't acknowledge that that fight is happening, you're losing it. Everything is vying for your attention, vying for your affection, vying to be treasured. Treasure me. We have to fight to keep Jesus at the center. And I think that you will find once he is there, talking about him to others will become as easy as talking about football or the Reds or vacation or your family or whatever you love to talk about. Which have you ever noticed when adult when an adult person becomes a Christian and is saved out of a very unchurched background, what happens? We call it they're on fire. That's what we say about them. And all that means is they're excited and they're going and telling everyone about Jesus. And it makes us a little uncomfortable. We're like, hey man, tone that down a little bit. But really, we should be more like them. And they, all they know is they had all these values and all this brokenness in life, and all of a sudden Jesus has changed them and pulled them out of that, and everything is new. And they're like, i got to tell everybody about this. And they go to work, and they tell everyone about it. They go home, they tell everyone about it. They're on the Internet telling everyone about him. But then after a while, they slowly fade back into this timidity about sharing about Jesus. Why is that? What's well, because they got saved and Jesus was their most important treasure. He was the most important thing in their life. And they had great clarity about that. For the first time ever, they've got great clarity that Jesus is center and the most important thing. But then as life went on, all these old rhythms and other things, they were running. He was like, Jesus, yes. And then all of a sudden, they got distracted again. And these other things fought for their attention. These other things fought to be treasured. And, they gave, and he gives in to them. And so then over time, it becomes less and less easy to talk about Jesus because all of these other things are dominating my heart. And so we have to keep fighting to keep Jesus in the center. And then we will naturally share the gospel. You know, one of our core values as a church is every member a missionary. Every member a missionary. 
And by that, we're saying, hey, to be a missionary doesn't just mean the people who uh, go over to Africa or Asia or, or South America to plant churches in the middle of the jungle or, or in some uh, you know, lost city or whatever. But missionaries are those who get up and go to work tomorrow at uh, P&G and GE and McDonald's and wherever you work, King's Island. To get up and go wherever you work and say, you know what, this is my mission field. Because there are lost people everywhere. And I am a missionary when I get up and I walk out my door. I'm a missionary in my house too if you got unbelieving kids or spouse. And so everywhere you go, you're a missionary. And that's a core value of our church, but let's be honest. This is a core value that's aspirational because we're not all there. We're not all there. We want to be a church that embodies this. That, that thinks every day I'm going to the mission field, wherever I go. But we're not there yet. Because talking about Jesus is scary and hard and uncomfortable, and we'd just rather not do it. And that's a problem. Because every single one of us who follow Jesus are commanded to make disciples. Making disciples is not the job of the pastor or the staff. It's the job of every person who follows Jesus. We're commanded not to invite people to church we are commanded to share and proclaim the gospel and make disciples, to take the gospel to our neighbors, but we don't. Peter makes it clear, if we are going to be a gospel-sharing people, it starts with putting Christ at the highest place of honor, treasuring him as central in our hearts, which is not a touchy-feely, private, internal thing. It is truly treasuring him above all else. And the only way you're going to treasure him is when you actually look at him and behold him and spend time with him and actually know him. But when we don't do that, we get off course. So here's the first thing I want us to see. We must make Jesus central in your heart and in your life. It's the first thing we got to know. But what follows that? So first, we have to make Jesus central in our heart and our life. Or, as we say, we have to make him essential in our heart and our life. But what follows that? Well, Peter continues, that we always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. If we are going to make a defense, we have to be prepared. To always be prepared means we must understand the gospel. If we're going to treasure Christ in our hearts, which is going to change every way we live, and it's going to enable us to talk about him to other people, we've got to be prepared before we do that. We've got to be prepared before we go. And so to be prepared, we have to understand the gospel. Now, if you know our church's mission statement, you're going to notice that some of the language I use this morning is, is from our mission statement. Making Jesus essential in the hearts, lives, and homes of everyone within our reach through the gospel proclaimed, understood, and practiced. Before you can proclaim a gospel, you have to understand that gospel. And you've got to prepare. The idea of being prepared means, the, the, the word literally means to stand at the ready. To stand at the ready. Well, how do you stand at the ready? How do you prepare? Well, if you have a really hard test coming up, uh, you know, like for me, I, I didn't really study a lot in high school or college. I, I was really good. I, I could listen, take notes, and, and, and go to the test, and I could make a B, and that was fine with me. C plus, that's fine too. But when I studied Greek and Hebrew, I could not do that. I had to study. And if I did not prepare, I would fail the test. And so I had to prepare, I had to, to study, I had to do these things, or I, was, I had to anticipate the questions, anticipate the words that I was going to need to know, or I would fail. If you showed up unprepared for a test, you're going to fail, or you're going to barely skirt by. Or think about firefighters. 
When someone calls 911 and says, there's a fire, imagine that the people that are coming to put out the fire haven't thought about how to put out a fire. They haven't prepared. They haven't had the conversations. They haven't had the training. They don't know how to put out a fire. And so they're in the car going, okay, what do you guys think? What should we do? The house is going to burn down. Or are they going to get there and go, well, should we go inside and see if anybody's in there? If they show up unprepared without a plan, people are going to die and things are going to burn down. If you do not prepare for the opportunity to share the gospel, before that opportunity arrives, you will have no idea what you're doing. And that person who might have been ready to receive Christ leaves still bound for hell. So we have to prepare. We have to know, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? You need a plan. You need to think about, this is how I want to talk to somebody when that opportunity comes. But it all starts with your own personal understanding of the gospel. If you do not understand the gospel, there is no way you're going to explain it to someone who doesn't know it. If your only understanding of the gospel is asking Jesus into your heart, that doesn't mean anything to someone who's not been to church for a long time. If your only understanding of the gospel is, you know, you need to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that doesn't mean anything to people who are not in church. And so if you don't have an understanding of the gospel, you're not going to be able to explain the gospel to someone else. These, these phrases have become like crutches to us. But it's such insider church language that people outside the church don't get it. What do, how, do I put them, how do I put them in my heart? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. But so we've got to understand the gospel deeper and deeper so that we have a clearer picture of it so that we can articulate it to others. And the deeper you understand it, the better you'll be able to answer follow-up questions. So I want to give you really quickly a simple, easy way to understand the gospel. First, understand that the word gospel means good news. The word gospel has become this junk drawer word where we talk about uh, gospel music and we talk about the gospel truth. That's not, that's not what the word gospel means. The word gospel literally means good news. And it comes from an ancient Greek society where when the king would go off to battle and would win a conflict, win a battle, win a war, they would send a herald back to the city to let everyone know the king has won and they're coming home. It was an announcement of good news that the king has had victory. And so our gospel is an announcement of good news that our king has had victory over sin, death, and the devil. And he's been raised from the dead, defeating his enemies for us. That's what the word gospel means. But here's a, a formula, I think, that will help you. I want you to look at it in two ways. First, the gospel on the ground. The gospel on the ground is God. We start with God, that God is holy. Meaning he's perfect, without sin, he is the only righteous, good, and perfect judge in the world. He is good and right in all that he does. We start with God, and then we go, man. Man is sinful, who have rebelled against God, who have broken his laws, who have, done, who have hurt each other. We are broken, and we've, we're broken to our very core, and we've gone against the things of God and done right in the world. So there's the problem. So we've got God who is holy, we've got man who is sinful, and then we have a Christ. We have Jesus, we have a Christ who is fully God, who comes to live a sinless life and to die a sinner's death so that we might be spared the punishment we rightly deserve, so that we can be forgiven of our sins, spared, and that when we can be one day raised from the dead, proving that, that God is good and has forgiven us. 
And then response. We've got God who is holy. We've got man who is sinful. We've got Christ who's come to redeem us and forgive us. But you have to respond to that. That is a message of good news, but it's only good news if you believe it, if you respond to it. If you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and died and rose again, if you confess your sin to God and turn from your sin, if you ask him to forgive you and make him the king of your life, and only then is that good news your good news. We've got a problem in the country that kind of sees itself as a Christian country where everyone thinks that they can just believe in God and they're in the club. You've got to look and believe on Christ, confess your sin, ask him to forgive you, make him your king. You don't show up to church and become a Christian. Being in church makes you no more a Christian than being in a garage makes you a car. So that's the gospel on the ground, but I also want you to think about the gospel in the air, the 30,000 foot view of the gospel. That there's a cosmic reality to what God is doing. That there is a creation that was good, where, where animals didn't come and, and rip your head off. Where thorns weren't on flowers, where there's no such thing as hurricanes, where no brothers fought, no one killed each other, no one lied to each other. There was no divorce, there was no adultery, there was no murder, there was no gossip. But everything was perfect and harmonious and great. We have a creation, then you have a fall. You have a fall where we rebelled against God and that wasn't just, it didn't just affect us, it affected everything. Everything fell. Tornadoes and hurricanes happened for the first time. Brothers killed each other for the first time. People lied for the first time. Everything in the world is disintegrated and broken and cursed now. So you have a fall. But then you have redemption where Christ comes to die and to be raised again. The Bible says that he takes the curse upon himself. And so Jesus is not just fixing you, he's fixing the whole world. He's not just forgiving you of your sin. He is making the whole world new again, making all things new. Making a world that we long to live in that is perfect. And one day there will be a consummation where Jesus has accomplished that, but we're awaiting him to return and finally make that a reality. And that day is coming. It's important for you to understand both aspects of of this gospel because people need to know the story that they can enter into. That yes, the story is about you and, and you being forgiven of your sin personally and having to respond to the gospel. But it's also true that you're entering into a story, a cosmic story of a creation that was perfect, that got jacked up, and that is God is making whole again. And you get to enter into that. That we're not just souls that are one day going to go to heaven and float around and say, oh, hey, I remember you can float over here. But we're awaiting a world we have always longed for, a world that is right and good and happily ever after. Tim Keller once talked about the way we share the gospel. He said, we need to share the gospel in such a way that unbelievers wished it were true. We need to share the gospel in a way that unbelievers hear it and go, man, I'm not sure if it's true, but I really hope it is. So I hope that's a helpful starter. But you've got to keep digging deeper so that you can rehearse and practice and be ready to share that when you have the opportunity to talk to somebody. If you do not prepare for the test, you're going to fail it. If you don't prepare to fight fires, their houses are going to burn down. If you don't prepare to share the gospel, you either never will share it or you will struggle so much when it comes time that you're like, I'm never doing that again. So prepare now so that like Peter says, you will be ready. But now notice the charge he gives next. He says, be prepared to make a defense. You should be able to proclaim and defend the gospel. 
The word for defend here is the word apologia in the Greek, which is where we get our word for apologetics, if you know that term. It literally means to give an answer. It was used in the context of a courtroom where the defendant would go to make his argument or his case or his answer in defense of his client. So if we are sharing the gospel with people, there are going to be plenty of opportunities where people say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I get what Jesus did. I like all this Jesus stuff, but why do you believe it? Like it sounds good, but is it true? It sounds great, but is it real? Is it true? And are you going to be able to to answer those questions? Are you going to be able to give a defense for why it's true? Where's the proof? Are you ready and prepared to give an answer for that? Do you know why? Do you? The problem is so many, so many times we have checked our brains at the door and we've just believed because it sounds good, because our parents told us to, because we grew up into it. But guess we can have confidence in the claims of Christianity and we can, be able, we can defend it. Peter told us to be ready to defend the truths of Christianity because Peter knows that the truth is on our side. That we are standing on solid intellectual ground and that we don't have to have blind faith, we have reasoned faith. This might be intimidating to you, but what I'm not saying is that you've got to be so smart that you can go on TV and debate some professional atheist. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that when you're sharing the gospel with a stranger at the coffee shop or with your next door neighbor and they ask you uh, a question that you're able to give an intelligent answer, that you don't just believe these things because your parents said so or because you're supposed to or because it sounds good, but because you have proof and it's true. I want to give you a couple of examples of classic arguments used to defend Christianity so you can know these and stick them in your back pocket. Number one, the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. It goes like this. Imagine a guy walking down a beach and he stumbles upon a pocket watch in the sand and he picks it up and dusts the sand off and opens it up. And he opens the, 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 you know, the face of it up, and inside he sees all the gears turning and, and moving and cr- making the watch operate. When this guy observes the watch, his conclusion is not, man, it's amazing that as the waves crashed on the sand and beat the sand together over millions and billions of years that it created this watch. That's crazy. No, his, his, his observation is someone lost this and someone designed this. Someone fractured this, fine-tuned it, made it, uh, uh, created all of it. And when we look at the creation, it doesn't present itself to us as a random events of chance that just happened to create a world that could sustain life. Our world screams designed. And if it's designed, there is a designer. Our planet's ability to sustain life is called by, it's called by scientists the Goldilocks Principle. Meaning that we are, and the parameters are not too high, not too low, but are just right to sustain life. Take, for example, gravity. Gravity is a mathematical constant. It doesn't change. The gravity is always exactly the same. But if gravity was changed by one-tenth to the 60th parts, which for us non-math people is a little bitty. If it changed by just a little bitty, life could not exist. Or if it changed on us in the middle of life, we would either fly off the earth into outer space or we would be crushed to pieces. You can talk about the exact uh, tilt of the earth or the nearness or farness from the sun. You can talk about the electromagnetic field, the density of mass, the expansion rate of the universe, and on and on, all these crazy scientific things. And all of these things are so finely tuned 
to such exact specifications that if a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a degree of them were off, life would not be possible. It is mathematically impossible for a universe to create itself, not to mention to fine-tune itself so exact to sustain life. The only way it's possible is if there was a designer. Even Stephen Hawkins, the famous atheist, once said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Huh. Well, maybe that should make, bring you to a different conclusion, Stephen. I wish I could ask him, well, who fine-tuned it? We know the answer. The answer is God. That's the cosmological argument. We can talk about the moral argument. Why don't, why don't all people in all times and all places believe in right and wrong? Why, why do people everywhere believe that there's a, why do they have a moral compass? Well, it's because God's law is written on their heart. I got to move on. I got, I'm running out of time. We can talk, listen, if nothing else, drive people to this one question. Is the resurrection true? Because if Jesus, who claimed to be God and claimed, to ra- claimed all these crazy things, if he died by some, he claimed to be God, if he died by the hands of lawless men, then he can't be God. He's not, he's not powerful enough. But if he raised from the dead, then everything he said is true. And so you begin to look at the evidence of, of did Jesus raise from the dead? Well, you look, well, uh, if you were trying to invent, invent a religion, women would not be your eyewitnesses to the event. But that's exactly what we find. We find women at the tomb discovering Jesus raised from the dead. And they write down, it was the women who found him. Women couldn't, couldn't testify in court own land. Their word wasn't to be trusted. But yet the disciples said it was the woman who saw Jesus raised from the dead. Why would they do that? Unless it were true. The, the, the Romans and Jewish leaders could have quashed this new movement with one simple thing. They're lying because here's the body. But they didn't do that. Why? Because there was no body to display. No way Jewish fishermen overpowered Roman soldiers at the tomb to steal the body. And when we look at all the disciples, these 12 dudes, or 11, these 11 dudes uh, go from cowards who are denying Jesus to being willing to being beat and flogged and killed for claiming the resurrection true. How many of you guys, if you were held at knife point, at, at gunpoint, would, 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 would continue to say that the, something you knew to be a lie was true. All 11 disciples go to their death claiming the resurrection true. It was the only reason you would do that is if it really were true. And they're changed. Something, they saw something so miraculous that it changed them. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelmingly true. And so the question, either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so point people to the evidence of the resurrection. And finally, your own story. If people don't, if you have no argument to make, man, tell them about how Jesus has changed your life because nobody can argue with that. Tell them about how, what Jesus has done in your life and how he's changed you and how he can change your stories too. Finally, the practice gospel. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The practice gospel will make people curious to know more. Notice that he says, be ready for anyone who asks you. Now, while we must always be ready to, t- to speak the gospel and we should be the ones to bring it up, there are going to be times that people inquire with us, what's so different about you? People are going to ask, why, why are you acting that way? The gospel practice, the gospel lived out, will make people notice. 
The, re- the way you go through suffering, the way you go through difficulty, the way you don't crumble in the midst of fear, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of grief is weird because you have hope. The reason you don't uh, go out and get drunk with all your buddies who ask you after work to go out is weird. And people will take notice and ask. I am not a fan of that famous quote that says, share the gospel when necessary, use words. Because the gospel must have words. But our life does matter. The way we live does matter. The way you conduct yourself does matter. Because it should point to that what you say and what you believe is actually true and it's lived out. That you're living by the values of a kingdom that's not of this world. And so people hopefully will ask you, why are you so different? Because your life should create curiosity in them. Your life should provide that open door for you to speak and defend the gospel. Peter uh, closes by saying, when we share the gospel, we should do so with gentleness and respect. Our life might be different, but we do not walk with a swagger. We walk with a limp. We are not confident in ourselves. We are confident in Christ. We are not holier than thou. We are broken sinners, saved by grace alone. And so we do not engage people in argument for the sake of winning. We do not bat, uh, you know, attack people on social media. We disagree and engage others with kindness and respect, Peter says, because it is the respect and gentleness that will again show them why do you love and care about me even when I think your religion is so wrong and stupid? When I've attacked you and hurled insults at you. The world doesn't show gentleness and respect to those it disagrees with. The world attacks those it disagrees with. But when our enemies come for us, when our enemies punch us, we turn the other cheek. When our enemies steal our coat, we give them our cloak also. When our enemies force us to walk one mile, we go two. When our enemies throw us in prison, we sing praise to God, for he is good and greatly to be praised. When they revile us, we do not throw slurs back at them. When they tear us down and verbally assault us, we respond with gentleness and love and forgiveness because that is what our Savior did. That is what Jesus did. Jesus was reviled, but he did not open his mouth. He was betrayed, beaten, mocked, and scorned, and yet he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The strongest person in the universe who could have vanquished his attackers with but a thought chose restraint, chose empathy and kindness and gentleness and love, and through his strength showed gentleness and love. And provided salvation for the world. You see, gentleness is not weakness. Our world tries to convince men in particular that to be a real man is to be strong and mighty and ferocious and to take other people out. But to be a real man is to be gentle. And it takes great strength to be gentle. It takes great strength not to punch people back. It takes great strength not to get on the internet and rip people to shreds. It takes great strength to be gentle. Incredible strength. So I implore you. Do not be weak, be strong and be gentle. Do not lash back, do not hurl insults, do not tear down. Be strong by being gentle. Show respect even to your worst enemies. And when you do, the world will not understand why the heck you would do that. And hopefully they'll be curious and say, why the heck would you do that? And then we can say, well, let me tell you about my Jesus. If you want to have strength to be gentle, the strength to behold the gospel in the center of your life, the strength to make Jesus center of everything. If you want the strength to to be able to speak about Jesus to other people, 
you have to make Jesus the centerpiece of your heart. He's got to capture your affection. He's got to be the treasure and above all else. You cannot white-knuckle this thing. You cannot white-knuckle the Christian walk. You cannot just try harder, work harder, be smarter, be stronger. You have to put Christ at the center. And that means spending more time with him. And it means spending time with him because you actually want to spend time with him. And when you do that, it won't be work. It will be because you love him and enjoy him. It will be the natural outpouring of your heart then to speak to others about him. Because after all, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's on the throne of your heart? Well, look at your life. Look at your daydreams. Look at your talking. Look at your thinking. And you'll see what it is. And let's put Jesus on there so that the world will see him too. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we are loved though we are unworthy. We are thankful that you forgive us of our sins even when we sin again and again and again. We are thankful that you've made us a part of your family. We are thankful that you have chosen to redeem our hearts. God, would you help us to fight the battle for for the throne of our hearts, to put you at the center. And so therefore, everything else downstream will fix itself. We'll gladly and clearly and quickly repent of sin. We'll gladly and clearly and quickly talk about you to unbelievers. We'll love our spouses better, love our children better. We'll be radical in generosity when you're at the center of all that we do. So, Father, would you expose the rival gods that want to sit on that throne? Would you expose the rival not treasures that want to sit on the throne of our hearts? Bring them to the forefront of our minds that we might repent in gladness of them and turn to you and put you there. Father, this is not just something for lost people to do. This is something that every one of us in this room do. There's a constant battle, a lifelong battle to keep you at the center. So, Father, expose the false gods and help us to put you there. And, Father, for those in this room who don't know you, who've been churched, who, who, who believe there's a God, but have not surrendered to you as king, Father, with this morning, would you call them to yourself? To come and taste and see that you are good. If that's you this morning, I'm going to stand over here to the left as we sing. And I invite you to come forward and say, Brent, I want to know Jesus. I want to follow him. Show me how. And it comes free of charge. You just give your whole life to him. And he'll forgive you of everything and make you new. Give you a whole new life. If you're here this morning, you would say, Brent, I want to put Jesus at the center. But I don't really know how to do that. And I'm fighting and I'm battling because i got these other things, these other values, these other priorities. I'd love the chance to pray with you this morning. Wherever you're at, I'd love the opportunity to pray with you, whatever you need. God, give us the strength to respond the way we need. Let us sing to you that you will be the center of our lives. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.